here this evening. Um, Boyd asked uh, a few weeks ago if I could do this this evening, kind of um, in in view of Presbytery. So this is kind of part two of Sunday School uh, this morning. Terry, Terry recounted uh, what happened at Presbytery this morning um, in Sunday School. I'm going to talk about church government first, and then if there's time, I'm also going to expand a little bit more on some things that were actually at Presbytery. So it's kind of a mini message followed by a summary of, of Presbytery activity. Um, so the two sections of scripture are going to be Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 through 23. And then too bad Pastor Hurd isn't here because he wanted to go back to Acts 15 this morning and we are going to be there <laughs> this evening. So the second half is Acts 15, verses 1 through 6. So first off, Ephesians 1, 15 through 23. This is Paul's prayer for the church at Ephesus. Very rich. This is one of the richest prayers, I think, in, in all the New Testament. Uh, so Ephesians 1, 15 through 23. For this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you remembering you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the father of glory may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And then Acts Chapter 15, go back a few chapters, Acts chapter 15, verses 1 through 6. This is the Jerusalem Council um, section. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So, being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. All right, so why, why are we Presbyterian? Kids, if, if, if your friends or your cousins ask you, what is a Presbyterian? How would you answer them? What is distinctive 
about Presbyterianism, um, they may say, oh, well, you baptize babies. That's, that's Presbyterianism. Well, that's true. That is a distinction of Presbyterianism. But we're not alone in that. Um, uh, the Roman Catholics <laughs> baptize infants. The Episcopalians baptize infants. There's probably others, too. Okay, so they may say, oh, well, you're Calvinist. That also is true. That is a distinguishing mark, should be, <laughs> of Presbyterianism. Um, but we're not alone in that either. Uh, some Baptists are very strong Calvinists. So that's not the distinguishing mark of Presbyterianism. Uh, they may say, well, you meet in really old buildings and you sit in really hard and uncomfortable pews. <laughs> well, they got us there. <laughs> But, but the distinguishing mark of Presbyterianism, uh, what it, what kids, why we are Presbyterian is because of the form of government. That is the distinguishing mark of Presbyterians. I'm going to talk about government uh, in three three sections. At first, we're going to talk about the church government and the spiritual government, the spiritual government of the church. Then we're going to talk about the physical government. Of the church. And then we're going to talk about the forms of government. All right, so three things spiritual government, physical government, and then the forms of government. So uh, the second one, the physical government is kind of the why and the what. And then the, for, the third one, the form of government, is kind of the how. All right, and we're going to look at a couple of other things apart from those two sections of scripture that we just read. We're also going to look at um, the confession of faith. The Book of Church Order, I think. <laughs> I'm not sure on that. And we're going to look at the standing rules of our presbytery. So that also is a kind of a form of Presbyterianism, if you think about it. We've got overall at the top the scripture, only rule of faith and practice that we're going to talk about. Under that is the confession of faith, which is kind of a summary of the doctrines contained in the scripture. Under that is the Book of Church Order how a denomination typically handles um, church order. And then under that is how a particular, in our case, presbytery handles some of the outworkings of what we're supposed to do in the book of church order. So we have sort of that order of government, even in the uh, texts and the resources that we use. So we have scripture, the confession, the book of church order, and then the standing rules. And we're going to look at all of those. Um, if you have your, if you look in the hymnal, uh, the Westminster Confession of Faith, look at chapter 31. Again, this is all, all in terms of Presbyter, Presbyterianism and the Presbyterian form of government. So chapter 31 in the Confession, I don't know what page it's on, I'm sorry, I should have, should have got that reference. Um, but chapter 31 deals with what is called of synods and councils or assemblies, if you will, or meetings. So of synods and councils. Uh, the first paragraph reads, for the better government and further edification of the church, there ought to be such assemblies as are co commonly called synods for councils or presbytery meetings. And it belongs to the overseers and other rulers of the particular churches by virtue of their office and the power which Christ has given them for edification and not for destruction to appoint such assemblies and to convene them and to convene together in them as often as they shall judge it expedient for the good of the church. 
paragraph 2, that belongs to synods and councils ministerially to determine controversies of faith and cases of conscience, to set down rules and directions for the better ordering of the public worship of God and government of his church, to receive complaints in cases of maladministration, and authoritatively to determine the same, which decrees and determinations, if consonant to the word of God, are to be received with reverence and submission, not only for their agreement with the word, but also for the power whereby they are made, as being an ordinance of God appointed thereunto in his word. Paragraph 3. All synods or councils since the apostles' times, whether general, general or particular, may err, and many have erred. Therefore, they are not to be made the rule of faith or practice, but to be used as a help in both. Finally, paragraph four, synods and councils are to handle or conclude nothing but that which is ecclesiastical and are not to intermeddle with civil affairs which concern the commonwealth unless by way of humble petition in cases extraordinary or by way of advice for satisfaction of conscience if they be thereunto required by the civil magistrate. All right, so. Three points, spiritual government, physical government, form of government. I'm going to go through each of those sections of the confession as we talk about uh, these three areas. So the first one is the spiritual government of the church. Um, Let us not forget, uh, we tend to maybe get tied up with things uh, we see and are involved in, but let us not forget who the head of the church is. The head of the church is Christ. We read in Ephesians um, that Christ in his office of king, is the head of the church. God seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. The Confession of Faith puts it this way, chapter 25, paragraph 1. The Catholic or universal church, which is invisible, consists of the whole number of the elect that have been, are, or shall be gathered into one under Christ the head thereof, and is the spouse, the body, the fullness of him that that fills all in all. So in Christ, in Christ, all of the elect are a part of one spiritual body. One spiritual body, one head. Christ, the head, who rules and reigns over the body. So in the spiritual government of his church, Christ is the head. We are the body. There's a spiritual union. There is no ecumenical divisions in that church. (laughs) No ecumenical divisions in the spiritual church that Christ governs. Okay? So no need. No need for presbyteries. No need uh, for councils or synods. Uh, we are all one. We are all under one head. All right. So that's the spiritual government. Let's look at the physical government. Okay? Now, if we were um, able we would have no need of a physical government of the church. Uh, But why do we need the physical government of the church? Well, the fact remains, (laughs) we are still sinners. Uh, We have a fallen nature 
in us that doesn't want to obey authority, who wants to, who wants to rebel, who wants to have self-rule, self-governance uh, in our fallen nature. So we need a government over us to counteract our natural state, our natural rebellion that wants to rebel against any authority, rebel against any head over us. Um, Adam had it. Adam had self-government. Adam could think God's thought after him. Adam walked with God. He knew God's will. He had the law written on his heart. Before the fall, he had um, kept it perfectly. So Adam had self-government. There was no need for God to rule over him in a sense. There was no need uh, for a, a, a government for Adam. Once he fell and brought us all into a state of sin and misery, now we have need for a physical form of church government. And even though we are still sinners, and even though we have that sin nature, um, we are called, we are called to obey that government. Hebrews 13, verse 17 says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Uh, the Westminster Confession of Faith. Um, this is the section we read, section 31, where it said in paragraph 2, which decrees and determinations, if consonant to the word of God, are to be received with reverence and submission, not only for their agreement with the word, but also for the power whereby they are made, as being an ordinance of God appointed thereunto in his word. So, like it or not, <laughs> We need to obey those who have authority over us. In the church, um, locally, that is your session. Regionally, that is the presbytery. Denominationally, that is the OPC. We need to, um, as it says, with reverence and submission, we are to be receive any decrees or determinations made by the body over us. Um, now, there is that condition. If consonant to the word of God, if consonant to the word of God. So if you're those in authority over you, if the session makes a decision and expects you to submit to it, and it is not consonant to the word of God, you are perfectly, and I sure, and I hope you would um, not adhere to it, but point out the error, as we read earlier, um, synods and councils do err. I'll point that out. So that's one reason we need physical government. The second reason is not only are we who are governed sinners, but those who govern are sinners. I, being the chief of of sinners um, on the session, I'm sure. Uh, so we who govern, those at the presbytery level who govern, those at the general assembly level who govern, are sinners as well. So as we read in the Confession, chapter, uh, section 31, paragraph 3, all synods or councils, whether general or particular, may err, and many have erred, and many will err. Um, that's just the fact of being a sinner, and those who ruling being sinners. The Confession, again, in paragraph 1, uh, I'm sorry, chapter 1, paragraph 10, the supreme judge by which all controversies of religion are to be determined and all decrees of councils, opinions of ancient writers, 
doctrines of men and private spirits are to be examined and in whose sentence we are to rest can be no other but the Holy Spirit speaking in the scripture. So the only supreme judge of all things is the spirit speaking through the scripture. That is um, that is infallible. That will not err. Larger Catechism question three puts it this way. What is the word of God? The holy scriptures of the Old and New Testament are the word of God, the only rule of faith and obedience. We're going to talk about the rule of faith and obedience in a second here. But as the catechism says, the scriptures are the only rule of faith and obedience. All right. So what is the end? What is the end of this physical government? Why do we need it? What is it trying to accomplish? It's trying to accomplish three things. Three things for um, physical government. The first is order. Titus chapter 1, verse 5 says, This is why, this is Paul speaking uh, to Titus, This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. So for the ordering of God's church, physical government is established. Secondly, for the purity of doctrine and worship. We read this in section 31 of the Confession, paragraph 2. It belongs to synods and councils ministerially to determine controversies of faith and cases of conscience to set down rules and directions for the better ordering of the public worship of God and government of his church. So for the purity of doctrine and of worship. Um, If you look... Our, our book of church order, if you look at the cover page, actually, actually explicitly states that. It says, the book of church order of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, containing the standards of government, discipline, and worship. So those three things, that is what the end of the physical government of the church is. What it is not is also mentioned in the, in the, in the Confession, uh, section 31, paragraph 4. Synods and councils are to handle or conclude nothing but that which is ecclesiastical and are not to intermeddle with civil affairs which concern the commonwealth unless by way of humble petition in cases extraordinary or by way of advice for satisfaction of conscience if they be thereunto required by the civil magistrate. What is that saying? <laughs> That is saying that we are not to make pronouncements, make rulings for civil issues. We are to only handle matters ecclesiastical, those things that affect the body of the church. Uh, We are not to um, issue rulings or decisions for the civil magistrate, nor are we to... um, have the civil magistrate issue orders to us, in a sense. We're going to talk about uh, this in a second, about who can call, who can call assemblies. Um, but in general, we are not to meddle with civil affairs. The only exception is by if, if, if a civil magistrate, for whatever reason, I doubt it's going to happen, but for whatever reason, they wanted our advice for some ecclesiastical matter, we would be free 
to give it to him. Um, but that would be the case extraordinaire. Um, and I doubt it's going to happen. <laughs> Nobody wants to, to hear what we in the OPC have to say, probably. <laughs> All right. A um, couple of scripture uh, proof texts for this. The first is Luke chapter 12, verse 13. This is um, <clears throat> someone in the crowd said to him, Jesus, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he, Jesus, said to him, man, who made me a judge or arbiter over you? So Christ is not going to interfere in, in, in civil matters uh, in the course of his ministry. He's not going to allow that to derail his ministry, uh, which is spiritual. And John 18, verse 36, Christ before Pilate. And Pilate asked him, are you king? And Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. So we are not to meddle in civil affairs. All right. So that's purity of doctrine and worship. The third item is discipline. The confession, chapter 31, paragraph 2. To receive complaints in cases of maladministration and authoritatively to determine the same. Unfortunately, um, we in our presbytery have been seeing way more than this than we really Ought to, ought to see. Um, I appreciated Tim, Tim Andrews' prayer the week or two ago. You know, we should be on the offensive. We should be out, you know, uh, snatching and pillaging Satan's kingdom. But instead, we're having to deal with matters of discipline. Um, <clears throat> so, and we're going to talk about that towards the end. Um, Robert E. Lee said this, uh, and, and, and I fear. Um, I don't think, uh, you know, I don't think this is the general mood, but, but I fear it, there could be a temptation to this. Robert E. Lee said this, It is well that war is so terrible, otherwise we should grow too fond of it. I, I, I hope we are not growing too fond of the judicial matters and disciplinary uh, aspects of Presbytery. It just seems like too many things are coming too easily, but... We just pray to God that that's not the case. So discipline is the, is, is the third point. All right, so we have our physical government. We have the, the why, the what. How, how, how does that government look? Well, we basically have three kinds, three kinds of church government. Um, we have an episcopal or hierarchical form. We have a congregational or an independent form. And then we have our Presbyterian form. Um, Episcopal, hierarchical means, hierarchical meaning that those higher up have more authority. So I don't know what it is in the Episcopalian church, bishop, whatever the highest guy is. He has the most authority, like the Pope in the Catholic church. Uh, You know, whatever the Pope decrees, that's that's law. Um, Congregational or independent uh, is congregational rule generally, um, and then Presbyterian. So let's make the case for the Presbyterian form of government. This is where we go back to Acts chapter 15. All right, so Acts chapter 15, verse 2. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question Verse 4, 
When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders. Verse 6, the apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. Then drop down to verse 22. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. All right, so let's, let's look at, that, at those few verses and pull out, pull out the case for Presbyterian church order and government. First of all, what do we notice? The apostles didn't play their apostle trump card, right? <laughs> they could, I mean, they, they could have said, yeah, I'm Peter, I'm Paul, I'm John, I'm, you know, I'm James. We were, with, we were with Christ, we were right there. What we say goes. They didn't play that card. We read time and time again, the apostles and the elders, the apostles and the elders, the apostles and the elders. So, it wasn't a hierarchical form. So the Episcopalian reading of that section would have been this. Peter considered this matter, and it seemed good to Peter to send men to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. All right? That's not what we do. How about a congregational reading of this text? That would go something like this. Then the whole church gathered together and voted to send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. Now, what's the problem with that? If it's an independent church and they vote to send these people to other churches, how much authority does that carry from one independent church to another independent church? I mean, if somebody showed up at our door and said, hey, our church says this and they're whatever, uh, I don't think we're going to put much weight to to what they say. So I think you can make the case for elder rule. The apostles and and the elders were gathered together for um, councils and assemblies, presbytery meetings, um, as we read earlier in that King's narrative uh, with Rehoboam, if you would have. If it would have been a presbytery meeting, he probably wouldn't have made the decision he made. But so I think um, Acts 15 clearly, clearly points out um, a form of Presbyterian church government where they came together, they discussed the matter, they came to a decision, and they published that decision to the churches um, in the presbytery. All right, let's look at the OPC particulars of this. Um, so this is what uh, Elder Wilson and myself lately kind of, why, why we go to Presbytery. This is the OPC particulars of that Presbyterian form of government. This comes from the form of government in this book, chapter 13, paragraph 7. It's about the local church and its session. This, this you know. The se- session is charged with maintaining the government of the congregation, It shall oversee all matters concerning the conduct of public worship. It shall concert the best measures for for promoting the spiritual growth and evangelistic witness of the congregation. It shall receive, dismiss, and exercise discipline over the members of the church, that's you all, supervise the activities of of the diaconate, the deacons, the board of trustees, and all other organizations of the congregation and have final authority over the use of the church property. The session also shall appoint ruling elder commissioners to higher assemblies. Okay, so that's appointing Elder Wilson or myself or 
Elder Rensenhauser channel to go to Presbytery. The session does that. Okay. Former government chapter 12, paragraph 1, talking about governing assemblies. So this will be up to the Presbytery level now, governing assemblies. All governing assemblies have the same kinds of rights and powers. These are to be used to maintain truth and righteousness and to oppose erroneous opinions and sinful practices that threaten the purity, peace, or progress of the church. All assemblies have the right to resolve questions of doctrine and discipline reasonably proposed and the power to obtain evidence and inflict censures. A person charged with an offense may be required to appear only before the assembly having jurisdiction over him. But any member of the church may be called by any assembly to give testimony. Paragraph 2. Each governing assembly exercises exclusive original jurisdiction over all matters belonging to it. Okay, so the Presbytery has jurisdiction over all matters pertaining to the Presbytery. The session exercises jurisdiction over the local church. The Presbytery over what is common to the ministers, sessions, and the church within a prescribed region. And the General Assembly over such matters as concern the whole church. Disputed matters of doctrine and discipline may be referred to a higher governing assembly. The lower assemblies are subject to the review and control of higher assemblies in regular graduation. These assemblies are not separate and independent, but they have a mutual relation, and every act of jurisdiction is the act of the whole church performed by it through the appropriate body. All right, so it talks about the jurisdiction of handling matters from in, in, in a graduated process from session to presbytery to general assembly. Okay, so one last point. Who can call assemblies? Because this has been slightly modified with uh, our reception of, of, of the standards in 1788. So who can call assemblies? Well, the version of the confession that we received, um, section 31 Paragraph one says this, and it belongs to the overseers and other rulers of the particular churches by virtue of their office and the power which Christ has given them for edification and not for destruction to appoint such assemblies and to convene together in them as often as they shall judge it expedient for the good of the church. So who who can call um, these assemblies? Well, it's the overseers of the church, the sessions of the various churches in the Presbytery, in this case, can call an assembly. Now, the original confession had a second paragraph in section 31, paragraph 2, which talked about magistrates can lawfully call assemblies of the church. Why? Well, think of the timing. This is the 1640s. Um, there is no king, Parliament's uh, ruling, and Parliament called for uh, the gathering of the Westminster um, gathering. So at that point, when when they were writing the confession, that was the paradigm they were under. Uh, They were called into existence by Parliament. They didn't see a problem with that. Um, And if, you know, if the form of government, if the Church of England uh, would have would, would have adopted a Presbyterian form, and you know that, that may have been 
okay, legit. But as it turns out, um, you know, especially here in America um, and other places, we removed that paragraph. And so a civil magistrate cannot force a meeting of, of um, our presbytery. All right, how about the frequency? This comes, this is where we get down to the standing rules of the presbytery. Section 2.1 of the standing rules of the presbytery says this. Okay, so who can call the assembly? Only uh, sessions overseers. How often? The frequency, uh, there shall be stated meetings of presbytery on the fourth Friday and succeeding Saturday of April, the third Friday and succeeding Saturday of October. So that's on our, that's in our standing rules of Presbytery of the Southeast. That's when we shall have these meetings. It's about to change. <laughs> um, we just had a first reading of a motion to change the spring meeting to the first Friday of April because there could potentially be a conflict with General Assembly. General Assembly is the first week in June. If you want to send a complaint or a communication to General Assembly, it has to be in their hands eight weeks prior to the meeting. So back up eight weeks, that's sometime in April. <laughs> Probably and before the third week of April, I'm sure. So we're, the first motion was read to move that to the first Friday and Saturday of April. It will have a second reading in the fall meeting whereby it's probably more than likely going to be adopted and then go into effect for the following April. So that's the way it works. There's a first reading of anything to change the standing rules needs, a, needs two readings. So that's the first reading of it. All right. Um, I'm going to go real quickly because Terry uh, went through a lot of it this morning in Sunday school. I just want to um, go through a couple things from Presbytery. Uh, to let you all know. Uh, the, first of w the first of which is every presbytery meeting starts with a worship service. Um, it's an abbreviated one. I don't, I don't know why they don't do communion. That would be interesting. But anyways, um, <laughs> so, uh, it's an abbreviated meeting. It opens with prayer. Um, they're singing of hymns or psalms. And then a message is given. Um, this particular meeting, the message was brought by Pastor Ari Van Eyck of Providence OPC in Greensboro. His text was 1 Corinthians 11.1. 1. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. All right. And he had a couple points that really, really struck me. And um, I want to share this, especially with my fellow, my fellow elders. Um, all right, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. So first of all, believers, all of us, believers, are to imitate or to emulate their leaders to the extent that they imitate Christ. Kind of like, you know, consonant to the word of God as far as rulings. Same thing as far as imitating Christ, uh, following your leaders. Follow your leaders to the extent that they imitate Christ. He had Philippians 3.17, brothers, join in imitating me. And keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Romans 8.29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Uh, 1 Thessalonians 1.6. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord. 2 Thessalonians 3.7. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us. All right. So 
generally, all of us believers, be imitators of those of, of, of your leaders as far and to the extent as they imitate Christ. All right, now here's where it hits home. Spiritual leaders are to be examples. Imitation is most, Ari's point was, imitation is most natural in the family. You know, you think about your kids. Uh, like it or not, they are going to imitate you uh, to, a, to, a, to a great degree. Uh, positively, hopefully, mostly, and negatively, definitely, hopefully not so much. <laughs> but but um, so it's, it's natural in the family to imitate. This is why Timothy and Titus could be called children, Paul's children, right? It's not that they're his biological children. They're his spiritual children. They imitate Paul to such an extent that they are received in these churches as having authority, as having the authority of Paul, because they imitate Paul to such an extent. So there is a spiritual succession of legitimate offspring. It should come first from the family, from parents being examples to their children. It definitely has to come from the leaders of the church, my fellow elders, deacons. Um, We need to imitate Christ so we have a spiritual succession. Think about those we send out on the mission field as reflections of us. And hopefully they could be received as Titus and Timothy were, knowing uh, they are reflecting ultimately Christ. So I charge my fellow elders and deacons to be imitators of Christ so that we may be imitated and emulated in a positive manner. So spiritual offspring will imitate parents and elders and pastors. All right, so that was, in a nutshell, <laughs> Ari's message, which I, I, I thought was very good, very good. Um, two other matters that uh, Terry did not touch on that I want to bring to your attention. One is home missions. This is a good news. Um, as far as home mission goes, we the church in Virginia Beach will probably be a, a organized congregation of the Presbytery in two, possibly three months. They're a very, very vibrant church. I think I heard 200 or so in worship. 100. It was up there. <laughs> um, but anyways, very, very vibrant. And it's kind of an interesting situation. It is a mission church that is giving birth to another mission work. A new work is going to be starting in Yorktown, uh, Virginia, which is a little further up the peninsula. It's the farthest. I, I, talked, I asked Lacey Andrews, I said, where, where do we blur the line between mid-Atlantic and southeast? And he said, that's it. Yorktown, York County is the far. In Virginia, our presbytery boundaries are by county, county by county. And that is the farthest north county in our presbytery. So uh, going right right to the top. So there, there will be a new mission work in Yorktown, Virginia, starting up. At this meeting, we also received a new mission work from Marion, North Carolina. This is a very, very, very small 
former PCA church, um, which basically the PCA has abandoned, and they have petitioned to come in to the OP, into the Presbytery of the Southeast. That was um, voted upon and agreed to. We received their membership into membership at the Presbytery level of the Southeast. They were appointed a provisionary session. Um, I did not write down the names, but they have a session appointed for them. Um, They have been having pulpit supply from various OP ministers, and they have been very, very pleased and very thankful for the oversight they've, they've been given so far. All right, so that's the good news. Bad news is we do have two two issues in front of the Judicial Matters Committee. Um, I don't have to, well, thankfully I don't have, don't have time. I don't want to get into a whole lot of detail. But basically the, the outcome were there were there were two complaints brought against the Presbytery from a couple parties for actions the Presbytery took last October. Both of those complaints were not sustained, were not sustained, which means, you know, they were shot down, basically. So there were two complaints against the Presbytery uh, for, for, for a couple things. And then there were charges brought in two different cases. In one case, two charges were accepted, and that is now moving into a preliminary investigation phase. Um, and then the other was kind of a weird situation. We had, there were three charges brought against um, a member. And there were two sets of charges that were basically saying the same thing as the first two charges of the three. So we had, you know, three charges brought by one party and then two charges brought by the other. And these two charges were virtually the same as the first two over here. So there was a very long drug out discussion about how to do that, what to do about that. We did not want to have two separate t- trials for the, potentially for those same issues to be the same witnesses, the same evidence basically. So <laughs> it was, the resolution was made or the recommendation was made from the Judi- Judicial Matters Committee to kind of merge those two into one but that didn't really fly, in my opinion, in, in, as far as our book of, church, book of discipline goes. I didn't. I thought that was kind of a stretch to to justify doing that in the book of church order. So that matter was referred back to the judicial matters committee to kind of refine and perfect those charges. As it turned out, right at the end because we were running late, and they kept extending the order they were they Well, one of the parties, the party who brought the three charges, said they would drop their charges. So, thankfully, so now we're back to just the one set. Um, technicality in the, in, in, in the book of discipline, if, that, if, if this matter goes to trial... There is a provision, and this is the one they tried to use to combine them now, but it's under the it's under the auspices of when you're in a trial, you can bring new evidence in at that point in the trial. So if this original claim uh, wanted that 
that third one to be brought in. It could be brought in during the trial. That is in the book of discipline. So I think that's why they were okay with dropping the charges altogether because the two are virtually the same. If down the road they want to bring the third one back in, there, there is opportunity to do that. We pray, we pray, and we appreciate your prayers that this won't even go to trial. It's in um, pre- preliminary investigation. There's every chance for reconciliation, uh, repentance um, at this point. And there's also a chance that it will not rise to, to the level of trial. So that's the report I have. Um, let's close in prayer.